Okay, so uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit from sort of the um, content-intensive talks that things you're supposed to remember to take care of patients to an academic topic that I think is important, but uh, not the kind of thing you'd memorize, but uh, an orientation about, first of all, why to do research, and then second of all, how to do research or how to plan a research project. And uh, it's, it's a, a difficult thing to describe and a diffi difficult thing to do, but uh, we're going to make this an introduction. And then the idea is that the uh, residents here will all do a, a scholarly project that will be of publishable quality by the time you graduate. And at least the plan has always been for the interns to choose a topic, um, get an IRB approval by the time the internship year is over because the internship year in our residency, you may not think so, is uh, not all that demanding. The second year is much more demanding and so that should be the data collection year um, where hopefully you've worked with your MRAP colleagues to collect data. And the third year is a synthesis year, again not so clinically demanding, some more free time and that should be the data analysis. And the concept here is to be ready to give your uh, abstract, your research abstract, to submit it for uh, consideration to the National Society of Academic Emergency Medicine, SAEM meeting, um, and the deadline is about December 5th of your senior year. And so how do you get this project going, which is going to take you two and a half years, to the point where you submit it to a national meeting? Um, just to extrapolate on that, the other, um, so, so the SAEM National Research Forum is the most discriminating of our research forms. They take about 45% of the submissions, so it's not surprising if they reject yours and mine. Um, and then the next step is to submit it in April to the National ASEP Research Forum, which is coming up this year in Las Vegas in September. And that's the second most prestigious research forum. Each one of these takes about 450 or 500 abstracts. And then if you don't get accepted to either one of the national meetings, the fallback position is the Western Regional SAEM meeting deadlines are usually, uh, well, you, you submit that at the same time as the national SAEM meeting with the same submission process online, and that meeting is usually in March. And that's much less discriminating. In fact, they take almost all the abstracts that people submit, uh, about 75 to 100 of them uh, each meeting. And then uh, last resort is the Cal ASEP, California ASEP, uh, meeting which is usually in first week of June and I, the deadline for that is probably April or the day before because it's much less organized as a research uh, forum than the rest of them. So the idea is for every senior research project to be presented preferably at a national meeting if not at a regional meeting and how do we get there and that's what this talk is uh, trying to start. So, so why do we do it as, at all as a resident? Why should we just focus on being a uh, terrific clinician, which of course we expect you to be. And the answer to that in my mind is that um, being a terrific clinician should be the primary goal of community hospital emergency medicine residencies. On the other hand, university hospital emergency medicine residencies have an academic mission. And so whether you signed up for that or not, or knew you were signing up for that, we're supposed to do more. We're supposed to recruit residents who are num number one, interested in academics perhaps, and number two, or at least are willing to explore it, and number two, have the intellectual capacity to master clinical emergency medicine with aplomb, and frankly, it isn't all that hard, and then say, what else can I do with my time? What else can I do with my life, with my career? And how can I use perhaps research, perhaps public advocacy, perhaps leadership to benefit society greater than one-on-one -on -one patient care, 3,000 patients a year, for the next 35 years? 
I think that's a narrow view of emergency medicine that university hospital programs should go beyond. And that's why we focus here on leadership, and leadership involves the potential for going into academics and therefore research. And you can't know whether you can be an academic or like research until you actually do it. And so we don't want you to just play at it. We don't want you to, to be a dilettante. We want you to actually get involved, do a project from soup to nuts, and see all of the trials and tribulations that go along with it to really know whether it's for you. So from a basic question is we all went into science, whether it was biology or chemistry, because we were interested in answering questions. How do things work? How do we make things better? How do we do it better? So we want to answer questions we're curious about. That should be our innate nature. Learn the perils and pitfalls of research, become an educated consumer of the medical literature. And that's one of the major reasons that we do Journal Club like we do, and the way we do have you do a scholarly project. You can't truly understand how to, do, how to read somebody else's research project until you've been to the, through the process yourself at least once. Because on December 3rd, 2013, when your research abstract is due tomorrow, actually it's due at you know, five o'clock tomorrow, um, to the national website, at two o'clock in the morning, you're likely to be up putting together that abstract for your senior project. You know, Jesus, you know, uh, Chakravarti's gonna hold me to this thing, but you know, won't let me graduate unless I submit this, and you're gonna be trying to put together your information and get it submitted by uh, five o'clock tomorrow. And at two o'clock in the morning, I believe you're gonna have an epiphany. And the epiphany is you're going to see you know, geez, I asked the MRAPers to collect that information. They did that about a year and a half ago, and you know, I got to put this all together into 2016 characters because that's what fits in the box to submit it. And I guess I don't even remember how we asked that question. Or, gee, you know, I could I could phrase this result this way or that way, and I don't really remember. And you're going to make a choice. Well, I'm more cynical, I'm going to say you make it up, but you're going to make a choice about how to present it. And at that moment, that's the epiphany I need you to have. Because then you realize that every researcher has that epiphany. Before they click the send button or they click the submit button, they have to make many, many decisions about how their data, what their data means. And there's a lot of different ways you can interpret any data. And you have to have that experience. And so when you have that epiphany, when you read somebody else's paper, you will finally understand why you should not by their conclusion lock, stock, and barrel. Because there's a hundred different ways they could have done that project. Until you do it yourself, you don't realize the hundred different ways and make that decision yourself. So that's how to truly become an educated consumer of the literature, even if you never do another research project. And that's the reason it's there. And decided an academic career is for you. And the bottom line for research in our program is that you need to do it. This is the board queen. Those of you who know me know I'm a Star Trek freak. So resistance is futile, resistance is irrelevant, negotiation is irrelevant, you must comply. This is what the board said to the Federation as they were trying to conquer it. So the RRC, our governing body, the Residency Review Committee in Emergency Medicine that governs our residency, says that you have to do scholarly activity. The curriculum should include resident experience and scholarly activity. Some examples, collective review, case report, active participation in a research project, or formulation and implementation of an original research project. And not surprisingly, we take the most difficult of those because we're a university hospital program. You could have gotten off scot-free if you'd gone to some community hospital program. You could have gotten off with a lame case report or something. But we want you to go above and beyond that. It must, and residents must be taught an understanding of basic research methodologies, statistical analysis, critical analysis of medical literature. That's why we do it. It's there. Again, we take a 
uh, a difficult road for it, but that, that's the reason. question you're going to do? Well, it begins with a general concern, a general interest, and then you have to narrow it down. I'm going to tell you how to narrow down a general question to a very specific question as we go through here, to a concrete researchable issue, defining the objective of the study, and we want to focus your uncertainty because you're going to be seeing a patient or taking care of a patient, and you're going to say, why do we do it that way? And then we're going to go through how to refine that idea. So a good research question can be framed with a finer acronym. Feasible, that's really the most important because you're doing a resident project and despite the fact that our residency is pretty cushy, you're still pretty busy, so you're not gonna have tons of time. And so being able to do it in the two and a half, three years and get it done is important. Interesting, critical because if you're not interested in the issue, then the drudgery of research is gonna make it really a drag. So you gotta find something that you're at least cool on to start with. Novel, nice, it's in the acronym, but even if somebody's done it before, I don't care. Plenty of stuff that's been done before needs to be replicated, and that's not a big deal. Ethical, of course, but we're not gonna be, you know, experimenting on prisoners or anything, so we're okay there. And relevant uh, is also critical, because at, if you're gonna go through all this work, you want it to have at least the possibility of affecting practice. Now, that's hard to do with a retrospective study that we're gonna talk about, but nevertheless, it needs to be something that if you, accomplish everything you want to, that somebody would look at that and say, you know, I could consider changing my practice a little bit on that, all right? So relevant. Now, retrospective versus prospective. I'm gonna come down on the side that retrospective projects are almost exclusively the purview of resident projects, because anything prospective is very difficult to pull off, and I'll show you why. So the retrospective stuff is data is already collected. Right, in some database, whether it's the Switters database or it's the National Ambulatory Medical Care database or the trauma database, or for that matter, our current new electronic medical record is collected data already. Those elements are there. There's a reason that you check off all the boxes and fill in all the boxes and not just have a free text prose medical record. It's because we want to be able in the future and even now to search for that associated symptom box or search for that allergies box, whatever it is, and, and the, the system is set up to do that. Data already collected is a huge advantage. No risk to patients, it's already collected. The IRB, IRB Institutional Review Board or Human Subjects Committee approval is much easier um, because there's no risk to the patient, and that's what the Human Subjects Committee is about, protecting the patient from everything, every conceivable risk, including invasion of privacy, which is a difficult thing to avoid. No worries about slow patient enrollment, no matter how common you think something is, unless it's something we do on every patient like a blood pressure, sitting around waiting for a patient to come in with a seizure is a prescription for failure. All right? Even though we see lots of seizures, even though we see lots of, lots of things, there aren't enough of them to populate a prospective study in three years. A friend of mine, uh, John Allegra in, in New Jersey, did a study where he asked the following question. Let's say you wanted to do a prospective randomized trial of therapy A versus therapy B for condition X in a single emergency department with 40,000 visits, a hair more than ours, in a year. How many of the 967 at the time conditions that we're supposed to know how to manage could you do that in a single center study? And the answer was 30. So 937 things that we're supposed to know how to do don't come through the door 
frequently enough for us to do a randomized trial in a moderate-sized emergency department a year. Only 30 of them do. And that would be presuming you caught everybody days, nights, and weekends and enrolled everybody and there were no exclusions and yada yada. And the sample size he was looking for were 100 patients in each group. All right. So if you wanted 200 patients with a specific condition and one ED, there were only 30 entities. And even that is an overinflation. So stuff doesn't come through the door as frequently as we think it does. And even when it does, we miss patients for enrollment. They have exclusion criteria. We didn't collect the data right. We have to throw them out because we couldn't follow them up. And a myriad of other uh, prospective research problems. It is less costly because we don't have to do any interventions. Disadvantages. When we go back to look at a data, a data source, the field might be empty. How many of you put your associated symptoms in the HPI box? Well, I do. So if you're looking for how many chest pain patients had associated shortness of breath, it's not going to be in that box all the time. You're going to have to search multiple places for it or <coughs> put up with it being missing. So the data collection isn't complete because we weren't planning to do the study before we started collecting the data. Conclusions of the study are therefore less powerful because we don't have as, we don't have the data collected that we needed, and frankly, it's less likely to be, get published in a reputable journal if it's retrospective. Prospective stuff is great, but it's a stronger study design. It's more likely to answer the question definitely. If you do a retrospective study, a case control study or a cohort study, by definition, you cannot make conclusions about causation. The only conclusions you make, can make about causation are from prospective research. So, you know, if you really want to say A causes B, or this medicine was associated with this complication, you have to do it prospectively in order to make that conclusion. Otherwise, the journal will kick it back to you and say, soften your conclusions, and they're right. <coughs> Complete data collection is possible. You make a data sheet, you make everybody fill it out, all of the data elements that you need are there. It has the potential to influence practice, even more so than a retrospective study should. Disadvantages? It takes a lot of staff training to collect the data properly. A lot of monitoring. It's very labor intensive. There's a risk to the subject from the intervention. Even if we're prospectively collecting data on stuff that is uh, done ordinarily, there's still a risk. For example, we're doing the trauma chest x-ray study. If we're not changing practice, there's no risk from additional radiation from the chest x-ray, but God forbid we should have to go into the patient's medical record and find out you know, what happened to them, that's an invasion of privacy by definition. And so therefore we have to either get a waiver of consent or get active consent. And a lot of consent problems in emergency medicine research involve impaired patients, everybody's too busy, the pace is too hectic, how do you truly sit down and explain to somebody to be able to do an informed consent on a prospective study? Cost of the intervention to somebody, and by the way, if you intervene and do something that's not standard of care, because of the study, then you have to have funding to pay for it. You can't pass it on to the patient. There's very strict rules about how you can't let that happen. And they go so far as to say, even if you're doing standard care, then the two options of the standard care should not be billed to the patient. So you have to find funding for drug A versus drug B, even if they're both possible. You put them in a research study, now you're experimenting on the patient, and you have to pay for the drugs, or somebody does not. Insurance company can't do it, has to be the, the study. All right, so that complicates things greatly. Patients get excluded because they have all kinds of comorbid conditions, and patient enrollment is effort dependent. So, as you know, when we read our journal club articles, they say we collected patients between 8 a.m. and 12 midnight, seven days a week. Why is it 8 a.m. till 12 midnight in emergency medicine literature? Because that's when the MRAPers are there. 
in our program and many other programs, the only time you can do this enrollment is when you have somebody dedicated to that process. If we had all, if we all had National Institute of Health grants, NIH grants, then we'd hire a group of research nurses to come and hang around the emergency department waiting for a patient to come in. But almost nobody in emergency medicine is NIH funded, and so we rely on our medical students and our college students to gather the data for us while they don't stay past midnight. So effort-dependent enrollment, and you can't rely on your classmates as much as they like you. Your classmates are going to be busy seeing patients. And they can't drop everything they do when the next patient with seizure comes in and enroll them in a study. So there has to be a separate workforce. Okay. So we choose a retrospective study design during a three-year residency when I gave this to a bunch of other residents. There were some four-year programs. And if you have dedicated research time for months, maybe you could choose a prospective study. But it takes extraordinary motivation and a lot of luck to pull off a prospective study during residency. So this is best care known to medical co coverage, not medical science, so meaning that the insurance company dictates the workup. That's why it's humorous. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That, uh, so now we're, now we're back to the finer criteria. It has to be feasible. All right, number of subjects. Dr. Anderson can help us all with sample size calculations. If you want to prove that intervention A is better than intervention B, you have to a priori, before you study, start the study, determine how many patients you need to show that. And then you have to know what your statistical test is, what your variance is, what your alpha and beta error are. You choose those parameters, you stick them into a calculator, which isn't all that hard, and it says you, you need 620 patients in each group. You got, it, got a year and a half? Forget it. It's not going to happen in a prospective study. On the other hand, if it's retrospective, you look at how big your database is. Do I have 620 patients in each group? Yeah, I can do this study. All right, so the sample size calculation is a very early step. You have to estimate, once you have that, how many are available, how many are excluded or refused. Probably 20 to 30 percent of patients just say, no, not interested, if it's prospective. Um, estimate the number lost to follow-up. Do you have complete data on all your patients? How many of them have bad phone numbers? We talked about that earlier, a lot of them. You may need to do a pilot study just to see if it's feasible. Um, and then you have language barriers, time of day we talked about. And patients who are too busy or too sick are a problem. One of the reasons we've never been able to show that magnesium is a, is a good therapy in status asthmaticus is because the patients are too sick to enroll. And they're getting everything else thrown at them at the same time. They're getting their tributylene and their epinephrine and their, and their al continuous albuterols and their steroids. They're getting all of that. And how do you tease out the effect of the magnesium when you're already throwing the kitchen sink at you? So the patients may be too sick to isolate the problem that you're interested in. Do you have the time available? Dedicated research months, longitudinal time during residency. Uh, it's not uncommon that I get an uh, email from an uh, enthusiastic student that says, I've got a month off this summer. Can I do a research project with you? Well, it doesn't work. It can't be a, a month. How many years does it take, Lee? Two. Four, five to do a research project? Yeah, that's a three to four. Okay, so, it, it, so a prospective research project and even a retrospective project a month isn't enough time. Cooperation of nurses and classmates, you need to get that even if they're not, they're not the primary caregivers. They need to help you identify patients if you're doing prospective research and the research assistants we talked about. Feasible, do you have the skills, the equipment, the experience, or can you find it to analyze the data? We are fortunate to have Dr. Anderson who helps us with our projects, but that may, may not always be present in your environment. 
you could pay a stats consultant, they run about 90 bucks an hour, where you're going to get that money if you don't have it in-house. The cost of the assay or the intervention, it's a drug cost, there's a pharmacy cost. If you need to follow up a patient in clinic, we have a mechanism here at UCI called the General Clinical Research Center where that's possible, but again, it's, it's a logistical uh, challenge to get that all organized and get the patient to come back. Cost of translating consent forms, believe it or not, they charge 23 cents a word, a word to translate. It can't be just, how many of you speak fluent Spanish? Okay, no good, sorry, you're not an approved translator. Even though you could do it, we have to pay 20 cents. So it's a good gig, you should try to get it. 23 cents a word. Okay, you can pay for your whole medical education network. The IRB process is uh, admittedly daunting. It's a little better than it was a few years ago here at UCI, but um, they are really persnickety about protecting human subjects. You have to have it approved before you start anything. Um, you can't start enrolling or, or utilizing the wrappers or educating anybody until it's all done, until you have official approval, and you have to renew it yearly. The consent forms are comprehensive. They have to be written in a way that patients can understand. By the way, in emergency medicine, that's about fifth grade reading level. You guys probably write in about sixth grade reading level. At, no, I'm just kidding. No, we, 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 write, we write at college level, all right, even if you think we don't. And the consent forms have to be really simple because our average reading level has been shown for urban emergency department paper, pa uh, patients fifth grade. This is actually, pardon? The IRB. Uh, Dr. Suchard from our department is on the IRB. Um, and it's about 30 people. They meet once a, once a month and there's two different committees. And they go over these protocols. If you do a retrospective review, it qualifies usually for expedited review, which does not go to full committee, where there's 30 different opinions around the table to scrutinize your stuff. So it's better to go retrospective expedited review. Um, takes three to six months for a prospective project, probably two months for a retrospective project. And if you screw it up, you have lots of problems to do. Interesting, so we're still with the finer criteria. Feasible, interesting. To you, um, it could be a clinical project, administrative, educational, or a bench research. Um, helps you get through the drudgery because the data collection analysis is difficult. The novel, um, doesn't have to be so novel, but it's a good, good start to look through the literature. Um, look through, do a Medline search, um, and you can replicate previous controversial or equivocal studies. You might end up with a larger sample size. You might fix a methodology flaw that they did, try to do something better or different than somebody else did. But even if you do the same old study, in my mind, that's got value. Because number one, it's you're still going through the, the exercise. And number two, you're never supposed to believe the results of a single study anyway. So doing it a second time is a good idea. Extending previous findings provide new findings. Ethical, you can't, you can't have unnecessary physical risks or invasion of privacy. Even blood draws are considered uh, risks. If you draw blood, on anybody, blood, draw blood on anybody because of the study, it has to, by definition, go through full committee review. Um, and you can only draw so much blood, you can't draw 37 million tubes. There can only be a certain amount of cc's of blood, and there's lots of restrictions on that. Now, on the other hand, if you collect hair samples or fingernail scrapings, that might that's minimal risk. And there's actually categories of minimal risk that you wouldn't get challenged by the IRB. Um, is there time to obtain informed consent? And that brings me to a brief discussion of the waiver of consent for resuscitation research. In 1994,
the federal government determined that it was inappropriate for uh, investigators to conduct resuscitation research without a full informed consent process of the person that you're doing CPR or their surrogate. And so it put an immediate halt to many resuscitation research projects that were ongoing in 1994, and it took about three or four years for a consortium of critical care physicians, emergency docs, anesthesiologists, intensivists to convince the federal government that there should at least be a mechanism to do resuscitation research. But what they came up with was very difficult. And this waiver of, of informed consent resuscitation research process is very expensive and cumbersome. What they came down with is that you actually have to do widespread community notification by radio ads, billboards, television spots, newspaper ads, focus groups. Somebody's got to pay for all of that so that you can convince the IRB and the feds above them that if you were an average person walking along the street, you would have been touched by this question of whether you'd want to be in the study. And then you have the option to opt out of it and carry a card that says, I don't want to be in the study. And so you have to reach the whole population, which is tremendously expensive. So even though we have now this, this uh, program for waiver of informed consent, it's very difficult to do, and that's why the only widespread pre-hospital resuscitation studies that are done are have tremendous funding, usually from the NIH or from drug companies who have a stake in it. So you can't do a homegrown research project where you can't get fully informed consent. And it makes it even more complicated in California because there's even more restricted rules about who can do who can consent for research. If 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 grandpa has a hemorrhagic stroke and ends up in the ICU, grandma can, by virtue of being his wife, make all the medical decisions for that patient and nobody cares. But ask her to sign a research protocol to experiment on him and all hell breaks loose. There's actually a California law prohibition against that unless they have the official durable power of attorney. Now it may have changed in the last few years, but whatever the national standard is, is even more restricted in California in terms of who can consent. So if you're scared to death already about research, we'll keep going. All right, is it relevant to scientific knowledge? Clinical and health policy is a great place for us to do our research. Number one, that's one of our department strengths. We have many faculty who are interested in public advocacy, public policy, health policy, and, and uh, it's a lot of the constraints that we have to enroll patients with clinical diseases in the emergency department, we don't have to do if it's a public health policy type thing. You could go out to the waiting room to somebody who's not sick and say, have you gotten your care uh, in Mexico? Or in how often and why? That's an easier survey type thing to do, a health policy type question. Um, and does it pass the so what test? Why go through all of this if at the end you go, eh, so what? So, how do you develop a research question? Stream of ideas as you're working the shift, you're running across all different kinds of, of patients. Um, pick an organ system or a level of acuity that interests you. Is it the patient who shouldn't be here that interests you? And your question is why? Is it the patient who came and left? I did my resident research project on patients who left without being seen. All right. Um, is it an organ system that's cool? Do you like cardiac stuff? Do you like neuro stuff? Do you like kids? Do you like pre-hospital care? Do you like the relationship between the pre-hospital setting and ours? Maybe the communication issues. Um, look through the educational process. What in conference uh, piques your interest? What keeps you awake? 
uh, administrative topics, um, patient flow, efficiency, time motion studies for doctors, relationships between doctors and nurses, uh, public health issues, domestic violence is a common thing that residents study, uh, screening for that. You can read about patients you see in the textbook. You can be frustrated about ineffective treatment or inefficient ED workups. Why do we have to get the CAT scan on a guy with a 30 second loss of consciousness? Why are the patients here forever? Why do you know, we're giving radiation to that patient? Maybe that concerns you. Look at the references in the chapter and stuff that you're reading. Go online and read the abstracts of the cited papers. Find out where there's no reference for what's in the textbook. That's pretty damn common. Read a statement about you do this for this kind of patient and look for a little number at the end of the line. If there ain't no number, it's somebody's opinion. All right, so that may be a question you want to answer or at least address. Do you like kids, adults, women, men? They, they better be mentally competent to consent. Or do you have sex with men, women, or both, right? <laughs> what would you like to study? What conditions or patient populations do you enjoy and what presents to our emergency department? If you want to do a prospective study on sickle cell crisis at UCI, you're going to wait a long time for 200 black, black people to come in, all right, or sicklers to come in. But if you want to do it in Long Beach, it's a whole different population. So consider your demographics as well. Discuss with the faculty or the content expert, do a Medline search, pull a review paper on the topic. That's important because that'll tell you what the answered questions or purportedly answered questions are and where there are gaps in our knowledge. Uh, pull original articles, focus on the limitations or future directions. A lot of research articles have those as a required uh, category after discussion or near conclusions. Limitations and future questions. See what you want to see if you want to tackle one of those. And then when you're at these research meetings, we send our R ones to SAEM because we want you to wander the posters and see what piques your interest. That's important. So those of you who are going to the ASAP Research Forum in September, take a, take a walk around, see what's cool. Uh, standard intervention or testing versus new. We can only build a patient for the standard therapy. New interventions have to be funded. Milder, milder <laughs> diseases are easier to study but less interesting to some of us. Consider the time course. Do we just want to know what happens in the emergency department or do we want to follow the patient to death or recovery? All right. And what other hospitals do you need to access? If you do a pre-hospital study like Dr. Schultz and Dr. Kahn did, to find out what happened to the train crash victims from Placentia in 2003 or so. It was a nightmare to get all of the medical records, all the patients who were dispatched to the different hospitals, despite the fact that each of those hospitals has a pre-existing agreement with Orange County EMS that they're supposed to release that information. But they were scared about HIPAA and releasing their patients' outcomes to a research study. So it was a three-year nightmare of cajoling each hospital's lawyers into saying that it's okay to release what happened to the patient who went there as a red or a green or a yellow. Does the intervention involve only us or do you have to rely on other departments? If we did a study, for example, on chest pain unit patients, where we relied on the timely evaluation of our patients with treadmills or nuclear studies, that might be difficult. We'd have to involve cardiology and get them to work with us and that often involves putting one of their people on the paper or on the study, on the abstract, on the IRB and it complicates things if you have to work with people outside your department. Um, our temptation is to broaden the research question but we can't. Sort through your ideas and then focus the question down to a specific area. That's the important thing. So to do that there are elements of a well-built research question. 
two different acronyms are PICO and SECO, perspective and retrospective. Identify the patients, the intervention, the comparison, the outcome for perspective. But we're going to focus on retrospective, subjects, exposure, comparison, and outcome. So you can use this uh, little grid. It's nothing magic about it, but just think of these different elements. Who do you want to study? What do you want? What do you want to have had done to them? What compare? Whoops. <laughs> what comparison or intervention do you want to use, and what are your outcomes, and how are you going to measure them, and who is it going to be rele relevant to? Forty-six-year-old lady, right upper quadrant pain for six hours. First time it happened, she's afebrile, vital signs are normal, she's got a Murphy's sign. You present the case to the attending or the senior resident, and he says, order a comprehensive metabolic panel, which has liver function tests, rather than a basic one. And you say, oh, the liver panel's normal, the ultrasound shows cholecystitis, patient gets admitted. Why did I need the LFTs? I've asked this question. I don't think there's an answer. So you could ask the question, the unfocused question, how useful are the LFTs and the diagnosis of right upper quadrant pain in ED patients? Well, that's a very unfocused question. You need to define what do you mean by useful, what do you mean by LFTs, what do you mean by right upper quadrant pain, and what do you mean by ED patients? What's the outcome you're interested in? Does it dictate further workup? Does it affect the disposition? How long they stay in the emergency department? Whether they come back to the ED? Whether they progress to surgery? Are you interested in whether they have morbidity and mortality at home or afterwards? And what time frame are you interested in studying? Two hours, seven or 30 days, or a year? So these are questions to focus. And what outcome are you interested in? Does the patient's comfort matter? Are you looking for analgesia, pain scales? What would you use? The length of stay in the hospital, in the emergency department? What it would cost for the workup? Cost effectiveness analysis is another thing you could study. And when you say useful, for a clinical diagnosis by who? By us? That's not the same as a surgeon's clinical diagnosis, is it? Does it? Do we have to test enough to convince the surgeons? Warrant further testing? Just hit the ding button and get the patient admitted, right? Dispolicious, right? We want to get the patient admitted. Is that going to? Is our LFT is going to take us there? Safely send the patient home. Get the HMO to approve surgery. And what do we want to use as our gold standard? Could it be surgical pathology? need to go to the operating room at all. Maybe the gallbladder is normal. Maybe it's a case of hepatic flexure syndrome. Maybe it's a case of, of biliary dyskinesis that's really got nothing to do with cholecystitis at all. So do we rely on the gold standard of surgery or do we say, well, if they have a positive nuclear medicine scan, a HIDA scan or papita scan or whatever you want to use, is that enough to make the diagnosis of cholecystitis? And do they do that study in your institution? Is the ultrasound showing a thickened gallbladder wall, pericholecystic fluid, and three gallstones, and a dilated common bile duct? Is that cholecystitis? What's your gold standard? All right, and do you require surgical pathology? More useful. Statistically, we have to define useful. Will it help us make a diagnosis by a statistical measure? Well, we could use the traditional sensitivity, specificity, positive, negative, predictive values, but we're not supposed to stop there these days. We're supposed to go to odds or likelihood ratios. 
And beyond that, we're supposed to use the Fagan nomogram to see how that testing takes us from a pretest probability of disease to a post-test probability of disease. So what's your statistical manipulation that you're going to use to define useful? And are we going to use a single cutoff lab values? Or do I care if my alkaline phosphatase is 150, 200, 250, 300? Or do I care about a rise with serial determinations? Or do I care about, care about a, uh, a, a number fold increase? Has to be a three fold increase or a five fold increase of the lipase or the alkphos or whatever it is to determine above normal to determine what would be abnormal. Lots of people have lipases of 65, they don't have pancreatitis. We're not supposed to make the diagnosis of pancreatitis until the lipase is three times the upper limit of normal. Do we do it? Sure, but we're not supposed to. Okay, so single cutoff value, best cutoff that predicts disease. Do we know what the cutoff is going to be, or should we, should we track the sensitivity and specificity, or one minus specificity, and create a receiver-operator characteristic curve to say that a transaminase, uh, an ALT of, of 240 and an AST of 230 is the best elevation that suggests the possibility of cholecystitis the most strongly. All right, so these are questions you have to ask when you do your research question. So absolute relative thresholds, when do we need to measure it? Do we need to measure it right when they come to the ED? Later in the course, does it matter? Do we want to study more than one LFT? And do we want to combine the tests? Maybe there's some magic combination of bilirubin and alkphos that would predict obstruction better than one or the other of them. right upper quadrant pain? Is that defined by the chief complaint? Is it defined by exam? Is it defined by the nurse? Is it defined by the doctor? At what point in time? Does it have to be existing when they get to the ED? Could it be the reason they came to the ED and it's gone by the time they get there? And which specific diagnoses are we interested in? What kinds of cholecystitis? Gangrenous, calculus, calculus. Do we care about biliary colic if it re resolves? Could it be ascending cholangitis, the patient's jaundice, febrile, and hypotensive? Is that the kind of biliary disease we're looking for? What's right upper quadrant pain? Which ED patients do we want to study? First time recurrent, people with known gallstones, do we exclude them? Duration of pain, associated symptoms, do we care about their ethnicity or socioeconomic status, their comorbid diseases and things that might also cause right upper quadrant pain? <laughs> Reminds me to remind you, please write legibly on all your charts. So, a prospective randomized trial for this question would say, let's draw liver function tests on half the patients. Everybody gets the gold standard, ultrasound and a surgical consult. Maybe everybody gets surgery. We can't do surgery on people who don't have the disease. But let's say we stop at the ultrasound and the surgical consult. See if there's a different outcome. We can do a prospective cohort design, go forward in time with this cohort, this group of patients, get LFTs on everybody, follow them forward in time, and see what happens to the people with the elevated LFTs versus the one with the not elevated LFTs. We could do a retrospective cohort study. We could get all the patients who had cholecystitis from pathology reports or discharge diagnoses. We could compare them with non-biliary abdominal pain and hope everybody recorded the information and that most of them got LFTs. So that would be another way to look at it. Of course, the last one is nowhere near as powerful as the first two. So, the old question was how useful are the LFTs in the diagnosis of right upper quadrant pain in ED patients? This is the research question 
that's more specific, and I'll read it because it's important of all the different things we've talked about. In female patients presenting to an urban and municipal hospital ED between the ages of 18 and 64, with first-time chief, first-time chief complaint of right upper quadrant pain, as recorded by the triage nurse, of between one and 24 hours duration, what's the sensitivity, specificity, positive, negative, predictive values of an elevation of either or both the serum aspartate aminotransferase to a level three times the upper limit of normal and or serum total bilirubin to a total, not indirect or direct, total to a level greater than 2.4 milligrams per deciliter drawn within one hour after clinical evaluation in the ED for the diagnosis of acute calculus or a calculus cholecystitis as measured by the endpoint of aggregate need for hospital admission, biliary surgery within seven days and during the index hospitalization or a path specimen consistent with acute or chronic gallbladder inflammation as judged by the official attending pathology report. That's a focused research question. You see how we've evolved from one to the other. So you cannot do the first one, you might be able to pull off the second one. All right? And when you come up with your idea, you need to spend two hours with a mentor, someone who's done research, and dr drill it down and drill it down and drill it down and figure out what's feasible for you to accomplish in two and a half years. So go forth and conquer. Clinical research is rewarding, interesting. It brings an uncommon sense of accomplishment when you're done. And believe me, your mother will be proud to see your name in print. <laughs> so see if this will work. First of all, I'll ask how many people, oh, it says John F. Kennedy. It had, didn't say John F. Kennedy. How many people would know that that's Kennedy? You guys are so young. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal serves to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept and one that we intend to win. So again, doing research is a challenge, but we do it because it's hard, because we have the intellect, the capacity, and the enthusiasm ask the tough questions. We choose to go to the moon in this decade. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other. So you can get help from this book, Designing Clinical Research by uh, Holly and Cummings. Um, and after you finish your research project, after you're <laughs> finished with the IRB battle, um, then you will look like Captain Kirk here. I'm in the middle of this. You're in the middle of the IRB battle. <laughs> you look like that yeah, yet? Of course. Have you battled the Klingons? Is that uh, the yeah, Klingons are still attacking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's that's the basic uh, idea about developing and choosing a resident research project, the rationale behind it, and I hope you're both frightened and energized. Thank you. So for those of you who don't have a project, especially the R1s, it's a good time to kind of see what you're seeing out there and, and do exactly what Dr. Langdorf is uh, is suggesting is to come up with some ideas. So there's going to be a follow-up lecture probably in three or four months. Uh, we'll, we'll see when Dr. Ryan is available so that we can kind of hone these ideas um, and bring them up and, uh, and, and then kind of set you forth uh, on, on the pathway to uh, success. Live long and prosper. <laughs>